Welcome to the What UK Thinks podcast, a series looking at what people think the UK's future relationship with the EU should look like. My name's Ian Montague, and together with Sir John Curtis, Alex Scholes and Claire Elliott, we'll be talking about what we know about public opinion on Brexit, the continuing impact of Brexit on politics in the UK, and what people want Britain's place in the world to be now that the UK has left the EU. And today, we're going to be taking a look at what the results of the elections that took place right across Britain on May the 6th can tell us about the continued influence of Brexit on the shape of British politics. We'll be talking to John about how the results broke down in England, Scotland and Wales, whether there's any evidence of a broader realignment away from traditional issues of left versus right, and we'll be discussing what the long-term implications of all of this might be for the future direction of the Labour Party. This is What UK Thinks. So, John, we had a series of pretty key elections right across Britain on the 6th of May, uh, covering local councils, metro mayors. We obviously had a a pretty significant by-election and we had devolved parliament elections in both Scotland and Wales as well. So there's an awful lot to consider here, but I wondered whether you could firstly give us a bit of a reminder of some of the key results from back in May. Uh, and also whether you could give us a bit of a sense of whether you know they, they pretty much aligned with what we were expecting to happen ahead of polling day or whether we saw any surprises. Well, of course, this was a bumper set of elections because uh, the elections that were due to take place last year um, in many a district council in England, um, in London for the mayor and for the assembly and one or two mayoral contests, um, uh, these were uh, postponed last year because of the onset of the pandemic. Uh, they took place this year, uh, but they took place alongside the fact that you know other mayoral contests, including some major metro mayoral contests, um, together uh, with the devolved elections in Scotland and in Wales, and in yet another completely different set of local elections, particularly and primarily for the shire county councils that exist in much of more rural England. Um, these elections last took place in 2017. These were also held. So we pretty much meant that virtually everywhere in Great Britain had an election to vote for for something. In one or two instances, it was only the police or crime commissioner or maybe the local parish council, but virtually everywhere had a significant um, uh, election. And it's, you know, it's the biggest set of elections between now and whenever the next general election uh, takes place. Headlines, well, the headlines were, of course, that Labour retained uh, the London morality pretty comfortably um, and also remained the largest party on the London uh, Assembly. Uh, Labour managed to reach 30 seats for the Welsh Senate, equaling its best uh, uh, ever performance. And um, uh, that was perhaps rather better than uh, the party was expecting, and it means that the party is not having to seek an arrangement with another party in order to have uh, be able effectively to control uh, the Senate. Um, in Scotland, the SNP uh, just missed out on a majority by uh, one seat, uh, but there's a very clear pro-independence majority, the SNP and the Greens have uh, 72 seats. Um, In uh, the English council elections, well, um, uh, the Labour Party lost ground in both of them, 
but they lost more ground in terms of seats in uh, those contests that were last held in 2016 than they did in those that were last held in 2017. They lost 225 seats in those that were lost uh, last held in 2016, only 62 in those last held in 2017. Um, because the circumstances of the two previous elections in 2016 and 2017 were very different from each other. In 2016, Labour were pretty much uh, even Stevens with the Conservatives in the polls and in their local election performance. Uh, whereas, you know, in the polls before the local elections, uh, they were running at six or seven points behind and that, that gap's widened even further since. Whereas in 2017, while the Tories at the time had a nearly 20 point lead in the polls, it wasn't as good as that in the local elections. But Labour were, were defending a much less difficult wicket in the 2017 places. Um, meanwhile, uh, the Conservatives gained 204 seats in the places where the contest was last held in 2016, but didn't make any net gains at all in the places that were last contested in 2017. Liberal Democrats basically trod water, net loss of three seats in 2016 seats, a net gain of 11 in 2017. And again, in Wales lost their last constituency seat, but managed to pick up a list seat. In Scotland, uh, well, lost the seat net, um, but basically uh, no significant net movement. Similar story um, in London and the Greens, moderately encouraging record performance in Scotland, uh, gained um, 80 seats or so um, in the English Council elections uh, in both 2016 and in 2017 seats, roughly divided between them, um, and also uh, made some progress in uh, London. So relatively encouraging uh, 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 for the Greens um, across the piece. Oh, and then, of course, in the, in the Metro mayors, while some of them were good for Labour, um, Andy Burnham certainly um, managed uh, to do particularly well in Greater Manchester. Um, but uh, of the three Metro mayoral contests that took place in territory where we would normally expect Labour to win, well, Tees Valley, you know, the Conservative candidate won handsomely. Um, equally in uh, the West Midlands, Andy Sweet, the Conservative mayor, also won quite comfortably. It was only in the West of England where the incumbent Conservative mayor was much less high profile that Labour managed to pick up um, uh, that contest. So the truth is uh, almost inevitably, uh, given that, you know, we expect in midterm contests, the opposition party at Westminster to be gaining ground that, and given that Labour was not defending a particularly good set of results in 2016 or 2017, indeed, in many respects, the opposite was the case. The fact that Labour fell back was undoubtedly something of a body blow to uh, the narrative that um, those around Keir Starmer wanted to emerge from these elections was evidence that now the party had uh, a new leadership rather than the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, that it was demonstrating electoral recovery. The truth is that Sakir Starmer in his first local election outing did markedly worse 
and Jeremy Corbyn did it in his ears. And of course, it was all emblematically um, underlined by the fact that Labour lost a parliamentary by-election in Hartlepool, not something that opposition parties are meant to do. Of course, it happened in Copeland in a previous parliament, um, which, you know, again, was a bad sign for Labour. Before that, it hadn't happened uh, since the 1980s, and that was in rather unusual circumstances. Um, so, you know, all way always round bad news for Labour and therefore, as it were, a key question that's tended to emerge out of this election and all the discussion is, you know, what are the implications in particular for Labour? How can they possibly recover? Right. And, you know, this sort of focus, I suppose, on, on Labour in the immediate wake of all of this, actually, I guess that, you know, sort of feeds into this wider idea that, you know, the results we've just been talking about there and particularly that outcome in Hartlepool, that that was basically kind of symbolic of this, you know, almost broader realignment, I suppose, of politics away from that traditional left-right divide that, you know, we've seen structured vote choice for decades and towards something that looks more like a value-based division. So, you know, essentially people's vote choice being shaped more by whether they have a a kind of more socially uh, conservative or more socially liberal outlook. And this is obviously something that we've covered on what UK thinks before and it's also something that we've been relating back to Brexit right so for example we had Rob and Maria uh, on a few months back talking to us about how you know Brexit essentially crystallised this division within the electorate for example between those that they called identity liberals on the one hand who were likely to vote Remain and on the other hand identity conservatives who were those people who were more likely to vote Leave so do these results tell us that Brexit really is still playing a key role in shaping vote choice along those sort of lines? Or is that too simplistic a reading of the situation in the wake of these results? Yeah, I mean, key backdrop to this election you know, was the feeling by some or perhaps the hope amongst uh, some, particularly inside the Labour Party, that now that Brexit has been done, that it would now fall off the electoral agenda, and that indeed politics would return to the more conventional agenda whereby those on the left and those who are working class are more likely to vote Labour and those on the right and those who are more middle class are more likely to vote Conservative. Patterns that have been undermined, stroke, disrupted very clearly in the 2017 and 2019 general elections. Truth was, however, if you were following the opinion polls during the course of the last year, there was relatively little evidence to suggest that actually this pattern was in any way significantly uh, unravelling. And then in particular, there was very little evidence that by adopting a strategy that's essentially been to keep Sturm on Brexit, just say nothing in the hope that it will go away uh, and off the political agenda, uh, and that this would enable Labour to begin to reconnect the Leave voters, that this was having much impact. The polls were essentially suggesting that Labour were continuing to be you know, something like three times more popular uh, amongst Remain voters than it was amongst Leave voters, and that the gap between them was not, for the most part, disappearing. And that equally, um, the Conservative Party was still overwhelmingly much more popular amongst Leave voters 
than amongst Remain voters. A little bit of evidence that perhaps the Leave voters were a little more flaky uh, and that they were protect perhaps, you know, before the vaccine rollout, a bit more concerned about the, the, the handling of, the, of coronavirus. Um, but again, with the vaccine rollout beginning to work effectively, a lot of that seemed to be disappearing. So um, uh, the truth is the polls were suggesting that, look, Brexit is still with us so far as at least the structure of party support is concerned. Indeed, even when Labour were doing relatively well in the polls back in the autumn of last year, um, yes, their vote had gone up, you know, by three or four points amongst Leave voters, but it had also gone up by much the same amount amongst Remain voters. So Labour were getting more votes, but not because they were doing particularly well amongst Leave voters. Now, what we then have to bear in mind is that these local elections, as we've said, many of them, uh, and the devolved elections last fought over in 2016, which was, for all practical purposes, cephalogical prehistory. This was seven weeks before the EU referendum, before this reorientation, this realignment of British electoral politics around the Remain Leave divide was in evidence. And even in 2017, it only had happened, local elections which took place before the 2017 general election, only some of that realignment was at that stage in place. Therefore, if all that was happening was that the 2019 structure of party support for Conservative and Labour was still largely in place, as the polls have been suggesting it was, then almost inevitably, Labour would do relatively badly in leave areas and Conservatives would do relatively well in leave areas, while the opposite would be true of Remain areas. Now, this is not, would not necessarily be any evidence of Labour struggling even more in so-called red wall areas than was true in the past, but simply that the Brexit divide is still with us and is now, was just now working through these local elections. And that's essentially what happened. So if we take, for example, the local uh, council elections, take the 2016 ones, the ones that we last fought over there, Conservative vote on average in the you know, wards where more than 60% of people who voted leave, Conservative vote up 15 points, not least, but not exclusively, because a lot of people in those wards voted UKIP in 2016. In contrast, in those wards where less than 44% voted for Leave, so these are pretty strongly Remainers, Conservative vote actually down slightly. Labour, in contrast, the, the, the divide is not as sharp, but then that's also true of the way in which its vote's been restructured. Labour vote down nearly seven points in the most pro-Leave areas, only down by two in the most pro-Remain. So in the most pro-Remain areas, you know, virtually no swing but in the most pro-Leave areas, big swing to the Conservatives. Meanwhile, take the 2017 wards, again, a clear gap, although not as big as we would expect as in the 2016 one. So in these wards, the Conservatives up four points in the most pro-Leave wards, down six in the most um, pro-Remain ones. Labour, in contrast, up three points in the most pro-Remain ones down one in the most pro-leave one. So here we're seeing a swing to the Conservatives in leave areas, but a swing to Labour and Remain areas because 
not because the voting is different so much as because of the difference in the overall baseline. And much of the rest of the you know, results you know, in England and Wales at least fit this pattern. Um, certainly the fact that in London, there's basically a 2% swing from Labour to Conservative in the mayoral and London Assembly contest as compared with 2016. Well, you know, London's pretty strongly pro-Remain. So a, not much of a swing to the Conservatives is pretty much in line with, with what you would expect. The fact that the Conservatives do particularly well in the Tees Valley, yeah, a very uh, strongly leave area. West of England, in contrast, not so much. Wales, however, the pattern is somewhat broken. In Wales, the Conservatives you know, do actually put in a record performance. Um, it's just that Labour also do relatively well. Um, Conservative vote does go up more in the most pro-Brexit parts of Wales, but it doesn't go up so much in those parts of Wales as it did in the English council elections. And Labour, meanwhile, seemed to have avoided doing particularly badly in more Labour. So in Wales, the impact of Brexit on party support is more attenuated. And again, you know, you can see the pattern in Scotland, but it's a somewhat more attenuated uh, pattern. But, you know, in England, at least, the impact of Brexit on the structure of party support is very clear, is still, is still with us. And that therefore, you know, the, less, the, the message is Brexit might be done, but it's still at the moment structuring electoral choice pretty much as it did um, 18 months ago. Um, for the Conservatives, that means that there is still a largely united Leave vote behind them. That potentially gives them a substantial electoral advantage so long as they can keep that coalition together. For Labour, in contrast, it means that Insofar as it seems to think that the path to recovery runs through regaining Leave voters, particularly in Red Wall constituencies, that path at least still looks to be heavily strewn with obstacles. Now, we've touched a bit there on, on both Wales and Scotland, actually, but I suppose a lot of the analysis of this idea of a kind of Brexit-related restructuring has really focused predominantly on England, and so... I wondered, you know, does this picture sort of change at all if we shift that focus onto Scotland and Wales? You know, if we say if we have a look at the results of, of the Holyrood and the Senate elections, can we say anything about whether Brexit is having as strong an impact on vote choice, for example, in Scotland or Wales, or whether it's having a, a different kind of impact? Or is this whole idea pretty much restricted to, to England? Yeah, I think, I mean, the answer to that question is that there's a little bit of both, um, i.e., um, one can argue that in some ways Brexit doesn't matter quite so much, in part because of the fact that it's cut across by the constitutional question. And one can also make, I think, the same argument in Wales. But it is also that it is structuring things differently. So let's make the point about structuring things differently. In Scot you know, whereas we've already said, you know, Labour is still fishing pretty heavily in Remain waters. Uh, and that's you know, almost as true in Wales as it is in England. So, you know, if we take, you know, the GBY polls um, at present, 
Labour's getting about 46% of the main vote across UB as a whole. That figure is being replicated in Wales, more or less. It's 48% of the main vote. Um, in Scotland, however, Labour's only got 24% of the main vote because in Scotland, it is the SNP. There are the party that are not dominant, but are by far and away the most popular amongst Remain voters with 56% of the Remain vote. And of course, in part, the reason why they're able to do that is because around 55% of those people who say they're in favor, voted Remain are all now in favor of independence. So because, as we said before, Brexit is now partly correlated with attitudes towards independence in a way that it wasn't four or five years ago. That means the SNP are able to pick up the Remain vote in a way that Labour tends to do to a degree south of the border. But it's also a sense in which it doesn't matter as much because the SNP are also more successful than Labour, certainly across Britain as a whole in picking up the Leave vote. They've got 29% of the Leave vote. In Wales, Labour's got about 25. Um, but it's only 16% across the UK as a whole, much as it was in the UK general election. But with this, it therefore means, yes, the Conservatives in Scotland are more popular amongst Leave voters than they are amongst Remain voters, but it's just above the 40% mark. And it's a similar picture in Wales, by the way, whereas across the UK as a whole, it's around 67%. So, um, and you know, the Conservative vote's more concentrated amongst Leave voters in both Wales and in Scotland than it was. It's just not, not the divide isn't as sharp. And it, you know, again, it's to do with the fact that you know, there is a substantial minority of Leave voters who favour independence. And equally, you know, in Wales, partly it's Labour being able to avoid losing Leave voters. That's partly because in Wales, if you believe in the Senate and you're not devo-skeptic, you're somewhat disinclined to vote for the Conservatives. Um, and therefore that again constrains the ability of the Conservatives to pick up some of the Leave votes. So the, the, the constitutional question in Scotland and to some degree in Wales cuts across the Brexit divide and therefore reduces its impact, but it is still there. Um, and in part said in Scotland, it's also a question of it uh, being reflected differently in the structure of party support. We're really glad to have Claire back with us today. And Claire, you had a question for John, which I suppose really goes to you know the heart of not just what kind of electoral patterns we might expect to see in the future based on what we've been talking about today and what we saw back in May, but also what all of this might mean for the Labour Party in particular, Claire. Hi both, great to be on the podcast. Um, I want to sort of circle back to UK Labour a little bit and what these results mean for the party. Much of the focus, especially in the media, has been on where Labour performed worse than expected. So the, the red wall in the Hartlepool by-election. However, Labour also performed better than expected in some areas, such as Greater Manchester, Wales, Preston, the Cotswolds and parts of the Southwest. What can we take from these results? So does this fit into the sort of wider realignment we've been talking about? And what can the Labour Party learn from this? Well, let's pick up the, 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 as it were, the, the, the bright spots for Labour uh, and then come back to the 
broader issue of the implications for labor. Well, uh, various things to pick up. I mean, the first is, um, remember what we said earlier, which is that in 2017 contested wards in England, uh, where Remain were relatively strong, there was a swing to Labour, much as we would anticipate, given how badly Labour did in 2017, given their current level of popularity in polls, and given the way that Brexit is restructuring the character support for Conservatives and Labour. And, you know, there were quite a, particularly quite a lot of the county council um, elections were taking place in places, particularly more in the south of England, where Remain did do relatively well, and where that we expected Labour to do relatively well, and particularly somewhere like Oxfordshire, you know, surprise, surprise, you know, it contains Oxford and deeply, deeply pro-Remain territory. Um, so some of it, though not all, you know, one or two places like Worthing, yes, Labour just does seem to have done particularly well. Um, one or two other things to pick up, you know, uh, you know, certainly one of the things about mayoral contests is meant to be that indeed um, well-known candidates can do well. And I think, you know, we saw that with, uh, with Andy Burnham in Manchester, although of course Manchester is not, you know, Manchester itself, as opposed to the one, some of the area around it, is relatively pro-Remain uh, territory. So he wasn't having to try to run up a, a particularly uh, a downhill um, escalator. So I think, I think, you know, the truth is, for the most part, the bright spots do not really negate the broad message, which is that Brexit is still with us. Brexit is still structuring Labour and Conservative support. And that, so far at least, Labour's strategy, seeming strategy on Brexit of keeping stum has not worked. And it does therefore raise questions about whether or not it is wise for the party to continue with that strategy, even if it doesn't necessarily want to be coming out as a pro-Remain party. Though, you know, warnings at the edges that the Greens might have perhaps been a little bit uh, uh, picking up some of that pro-Remain vote. And certainly Labour needs to be aware that so far the Liberal Democrats, for reasons that are not immediately obvious, have also not been willing to pick up the pro-Remain baton or what would now be the pro-Rejoin baton for them. It's not obvious that there's much of a um, a, a difficulty in choosing that path. But anyway, um, but um, it's not obvious that keeping Sturm on Brexit is going to work and that um, politics is necessarily going to go back to being the left-right divide. And even if it does, that may be a more difficult divide for Labour to articulate than perhaps it um, anticipates. So let's take those two points. So an alternative approach to where Labour would be at would be to say, well, actually, if we simply say quiet about Brexit, then we are never going to do anything that helps to unhinge Leave voters from the Labour Party. And that if we are going to do that, then we certainly at minimum need to begin to call out 
where we think that Brexit is not working and thereby try to persuade Leave voters either that actually, you know, the Conservatives have let them down, which is kind of stage one, and preferably stage two, that maybe Brexit was not such a good idea after all, such that therefore they potentially become available or more available to the Labour Party to cry to win. And in doing that, at least, the Labour Party is certainly will be sending out messages that will help to shore up its more pro-Remain uh, vote. Now, and that, you know, in doing this, yes, the Conservatives will say, well, you know, does that mean you don't back Brexit, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth is, the Conservative, and Boris Johnson anyway, is going to claim that the Labour Party want to reverse Brexit. I don't think there is any way that that accusation can be avoided. Um, and to that extent, at least, therefore, it's probably better to go on the attack than it is to play a defensive shield that at the end of the day simply allows your opponents to throw arrows at you and it becomes difficult to avoid at least some of them trying uh, avoiding the, um, the, the protective ring you try to put around it. The second then reason for kind of saying, well, you know, be aware of that, that maybe you do have to be willing to talk about, I mean, Brexit, of course, and also just being aware that so far as Scotland is concerned, not attacking Brexit is not obviously an effective electoral strategy at all. And insofar as Labour have an obstacle between them and winning an overall majority, one might be with the red wall seats, but the other is definitely Scotland, where the challenge is a very different one. The second is that you know, on the left-right divide, is we are looking at a government that, in some respects at least, is very different from any other Conservative administration since 1979. It's one that, at least in some respects at least, was much more willing to engage in public spending, increasing public spending, particularly in capital spending. We can have more interesting debate about its stance on current spending and the way in which perhaps when it comes to current spending, this is a government whose um, reflexes are perhaps still rather more traditional. Um, see the rise it's got to over free school meals and now more recently on um, spending on trying to overcome the way in which um, the pandemic has affected those in more difficult circumstances. But it's, you know, this is not, a, this is a government whose Rhetoric at least is leveling up. It does have an infrastructure program that's designed to deal with that. So therefore, you know, arguably maybe what Labour Party needs to realise is that in some respects, there's a, there's a potentially a parallel between the difficulties that the Conservative Party found itself in um, after 1997 um, and the difficulties the Labour Party finds itself in now. You know, the truth is what the Conservatives struggled to deal with after 1997 was the way in which the Labour Party had seemingly pitched their tent on a lot of traditional Conservative territory. No, not least in terms of being able to, willing to accept uh, in many respects the operation of the market, trying to reduce expenditure on welfare, um, etc. Um, and the, 
now we are, the Labour Party is finding itself faced with a conservative administration that is rather more willing to have a more active state, has an agenda at least of more equality of at least of a certain kind, and therefore is in some respects pitched its tent on traditional Labour territory, and at the same time has done so in so far as it's come up with a argument that appeals to some of the party's more socially conservative, more working class voters, that part of Labour's coalition uh, via the delivery of Brexit. Now, if that is the case, then it seems to me that Labour have to appreciate that they are facing a different challenge from either the one that Tony Blair faced when he became leader in 1994 or the challenge that Jeremy Corbyn uh, faced when he first became leader in 2015 before the Brexit referendum. And that therefore the reaction that we've seen inside the Labour Party, whereby those of a more Blairite persuasion have been saying, you know, it just means to go, we need to become even more Blairite once again. And that those of the more Corbynite end of the party have been saying, this just goes to prove that actually, you know, we should be continuing to follow the true path that Jeremy laid out, that actually neither of those reactions is necessarily appropriate to the current circumstances. Rather, Labour has to work out what is its appropriate strategy in a different set of circumstances, but a strategy that perhaps is not just simply different from the one that Tony Blair pursued or the one that Jeremy Corbyn pursued, but is also perhaps one that is different from the one that so far at least Sakir Starmer has been inclined to pursue um, and that to that extent at least you know there is a need for a rethinking throughout the Labour Party about how does it get itself out of what at the moment at least given the current polls is quite a substantial electoral hole indeed. Before we go, as ever, we'd like to say thank you to the SRC and especially their UK in a Changing Europe programme who promote high quality independent research into the constitutional future of the UK and its relationship with the EU and who fund the work that we do here at What UK Thinks and also over at What Scotland Thinks too. And their website is a really great source of information, not just on the issues that we cover, but you can access a real wealth of high quality research that goes well beyond the realm of public attitudes towards Brexit. So please do head to ukandeu.ac.uk and have a look around if you'd like to dig a little deeper into any aspect of the Brexit process that you might be particularly interested in. To access some of the data that we've been discussing today, please do head to whatukthinks.org forward slash EU and explore the comprehensive collection of publicly available polling data that we have on there. You can see how public attitudes to all sorts of aspects of the Brexit process have changed over time and you can view our in-depth analysis of how people think the UK's relationship with the EU should look post-Brexit. And if you're interested in public attitudes towards the UK's constitutional arrangements, have a listen to the What Scotland Thinks podcast, a series looking at what people think about how Scotland, England and Wales should be governed, again with the help of the expert eye of Sir John Curtis. And finally, thanks to John, thank you to Claire and goodbye from all of us.